God's word, I'd love for you to turn to uh, sorry, Mark chapter number 7, Mark chapter number 7 this morning. As many of you know, we have been trekking through the book of Mark, it began in Mark chapter 1, and verse number 1, just taking it as our task to work our way through the entirety of the gospel. God's been gracious to us um, in that, I'm giving us, I pray, much richness as we just glean into the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just thought in the life of this church, um, we needed more Christ. And that's true, and Christ is in all of the scriptures. Um, each book, um, though, gives us a uniqueness about um, what the author and what the Spirit is trying to convey to us um, in regards to the Lord. But um, So the Gospels offer something extremely unique. I'm in that as they just display for us the earthly ministry of our Lord. And um, I pray that it's been a a tremendous blessing to you, and I pray that it continues to be a a blessing to you. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're willing and able. I'm out of reverence for it. We see that example for us in Scripture. Um, Teaches us and our children um, a respect and a reverence for God's Word in in contrast uh, to ours. We'll take our reading this morning from Mark chapter number 7 and verse number 24 through 30. You read these words. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden, for a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, The children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And he answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. And then he said to her, For this saying, Go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again. Um, so many prayers already been offered. Father, not only publicly, but I pray privately. I'm asking you to accomplish a mighty work this morning. Father, we um, come to you with, I pray, hearts that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Lord, with um, empty souls, I pray, ready to be filled with your word. Father, we ask you to do this because we know that we can't. Lord, we recognize that if anything's going to be accomplished, Father, it'll be accomplished by your Spirit according to your Word, Father, and not by um, strength or skill or intellect or um, even great persuasion techniques. Um, Father, we come as a needy people this morning um, in need of you. So, Father, as we gather around your word for the next few moments, I pray that you would um, ease our anxieties, Lord. Um, um, Help us to cast our cares upon you because we know that you careth for us. Father, help us to uh, stay our minds upon your word, Father. Um, Help us to um, lean upon the promises of God. Father, help us to look to Christ this morning and gain some encouragement, some correction, Father, some instruction in righteousness that we may be the men that you desire for us to be, Father, equipped for every good work. 
Father, there's no doubt in my mind that there are people here that are weighed down uh, with cares and burdens and life and stress and anxiety as we look around at the turmoil of life and, God, the economy and our families and a hundred other things. Um, Father, um, I pray that uh, for a few moments we can help lay all that aside and just uh, focus in on you, Father, and that you would feed us from your word and that you would accomplish great and mighty things. Lord, we pray that you would feed your people this morning um, sweetness of communion with you. And uh, Lord, if there's somebody here that doesn't know Christ, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. Father, we pray that you would uh, administer a new heart, God, and um, uh, through your word, and that you would accomplish uh, the unthinkable, Father, a miraculous work in the, in the inner man of uh, some poor soul, as you have for us, Father. This is what Christ came to accomplish, and we pray that he would accomplish that this morning, bringing um, those for whom he died into the fold. Father, we love you uh, once again and just pray, God, that um, you um, manifest your presence this morning, Father, in your word, through your spirit. Um, I pray that we have not come to be entertained, Lord, um, but to worship. So may we fall at your feet this morning, um, at this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 30 precious portion of scripture, um, controversial to say the least as well, I and mean, maybe you'll see why in just a, a few moments. I encourage you as you come to the Word, I pray that the Word of God is um, a centerpiece in your life and your home, um, and I pray that you, you read it, um, and not just read it, but actually read it. Read it for life, read it for practice, read it for godliness. Um, read it out of obedience, but read it out of a love for the Lord and a love um, for God and His Word. Um, this is what I pray that our hearts would be somewhat like the psalmists, um, like the writers of old, um, who, I, who I believe were not perfect, but um, panted after God like the deer pants after the water brook, um, who at times could say legitimately that they loved God's Word than even more than their necessary food and and sure, that's hyperbole, and sure, that's never perfected, but um, I do believe it's possible, and I believe that that's God's desire as well as our desire. And part of that looks like reading the Word and getting into the Word. Um, it means oftentimes stopping alongside the road of a passage like this and inserting yourself, um, not in a, a narcissistic type way, but um, in somewhat of a, as I mentioned before, a sanctified imagination. Um, because it's hard for things to truly impact us until they become personal. It's hard for them to become experiential until they become practical. Um, so we have to kind of uh, come alongside the road, paint a picture, if you will, and look in and try to relate and sympathize and even empathize with these people. And even outside of that, sometimes we can't. We know the Lord can accomplish mighty things in our heart as we just meditate and chew on on the Word of God. This is one of those passages that I believe that if you will take just a few moments and put yourself into the passage, um, that it will take you on somewhat of a, an, a, an emotional roller coaster and an affectionate type of um, ordeal. And of course, we don't thrive on affections. Um, regardless of what our affections feel, we trust God's Word and He reorients those affections. But um, but God also works in our spirit to cultivate fruit that are no doubt um, affectionate, such as love, compassion, grace, joy, um, godly anger, and a number of other things. And while they are more than just um, affections, they are not 
um, less than affections. Um, so as you read accounts throughout the scriptures, um, throughout the Old Testament and the New, I pray that you would um, somewhat feel, again, we don't rest wholly on feelings, but um, at the same time, God is a God of affections. Um, so when you come here, I think you come to a very um, startling, if you will, um, passage of scripture, if you'll put yourself into it, and we'll try to do that. We read this morning a passage of scripture that deals with a person that we know of as a Syrophoenician woman. Matthew refers to her in this account, um, in his parallel account in Matthew chapter 15, um, as a Canaanite woman. Um, some may wonder about the organization of scripture. I believe that this passage of scripture is inserted here as well as in Matthew um, for a particular purpose, and one of those purposes is, is that this portion of Scripture um, is here to give a great contrast, I believe. The contrast is with this passage of Scripture and the previous passage of Scripture. Um, Christ, the Spirit of God, Mark, or Peter, who I believe is probably undergirding this portion of Scripture as Mark ascribes uh, it, um, shows a great contrast between um, Israel the children of Abraham, with all of their covenantal blessings, uh, yet locked in religious legalism, externalism, antinomianism, and unbelief. And he contrasts that here with a what we would ref- what what even the text refers to as a supposed Gentile um, dog. That's a controversial statement in and of itself. And her faith in the Messiah. The Jews considered anyone outside the camp in the previous passage. If you were with us. And if not, I encourage you to go back and refresh your mind later. But um, the Jews considered anyone outside the camp, outside the nation of Israel, um, to be unclean or defiled and unworthy of God's grace. They were considered um, ungodly, if you will. So this is also a concrete example of Jesus putting into practice what He just taught in the previous portion about uh, true defilement. Uh, that true defilement doesn't come from dirty hands or what you do on the outside, but true defilement actually comes from within the body, within the inner man. Um, you don't become defiled by the things that you put in or the fact that you don't wash your hands or uh, cleanliness laws. Actually, cleanliness laws don't clean you from in a spiritual fashion. Um, that true uh, defilement and true cleanliness actually comes from the inside. And the truth is, is that we're all by nature defiled because we have hearts that are defiled. We're born into the world with hearts that are defiled and given long enough in the right environment. Um, the fruit of that is manifested in all of our lives. Um, the, these men were not simply considered righteous, and neither are we, because of the blood that flows through our, our veins, whether it's Abraham's or our father's. Um, but they were to be accounted righteous, and if they were going to be accounted righteous, it would, only, it would have to come the same way that it's always came, the same way that it came to Abraham, their father, and that was through faith. That he attained what the Scripture says is righteousness according to or by faith. And in this text, we're going to see a startling demonstration of that. Um, in contrast to the previous, as Israel stands up and argues that they're Abraham's seed, and thus they have a right to... Um, particular blessings, even salvation, um, Jesus Christ is going to say no, um, as He says in many places. And the contrast becomes so glaring to the Jew um, as faith is born in and exercised by somebody that would be considered um, the worst of the worst. So we come to the text. 
Again, we begin in verse number 24. You read these words. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted uh, no one to know it. But he could not be hidden. So we, we begin again with Jesus as he often does, and that's him traveling. Interestingly enough, Jesus travels, as far as I can tell, in this portion of Scripture is the first time, and I think the only time, again, insofar as I can tell um, uh, through reading the Word, that he travels into um, this area, an uncharted territory. Really the first, and I think the only time he actually goes outside the nation of Israel. Now, many come to him. You read that in Mark chapter 3, and I think verse number 7 and 8, um, we're reminded that many came to him, but rarely does he ever go out. Um, as we said in uh, Mark chapter 3, you read, uh, But Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he garners so much attention because of his miraculous works, because of his miraculous words, um, and a number of other things. Because of all that he's accomplishing, he garners a lot of attention from all the surrounding areas so people come to him. This is the first time that we really see him go outside the bounds of Israel um, to what would be considered pagan territory. What does he do? Interestingly enough, he enters a house. Um, and he wanted no one to know it. Um, why? Because he wanted to be hidden. So we see the place and the purpose of his travels in some sense. The place is Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were a place that were, uh, were, were two places that were, Tyre particularly, um, that, were, that was established uh, probably 2,000 years earlier. Um, it was a place in, place, um, in history that um, had some good and bad history. Ultimately, they're going to end up in a, a horrible place. In their beginnings, the king of Tyre was actually friends with men like Solomon and David. Um, but through uh, much uh, war and, and battle for territory, places like Babylon, Assyria come in and ransack them. They survive that, but not on, uh, not on good terms. Eventually, um, Alexander the Great comes, 3-400 B.C., and just totally tumults the place, and it's given over to Roman and Greek rule. Um, all throughout the Old Testament, you read that Tyre particularly is a place that is um, almost synonymous with pride. Um, pride manifested in trade and pride manifested in a number of other ways. Even more than that, we find out that Tyre and Sidon um, are um, placed in a location that you might recognize if you think about their original name. Um, it was the land of Canaan. If you remember, God gives the people of God the land of Canaan. It's the promised land. What do they have to do, though? They have to go in and occupy it, so they have to go to battle. And the Canaanites become the arch nemesis of, uh, nemesis of the nation of Israel, and they're a very wicked and a truly wicked people. So all throughout the Old Testament, you hear men like Jeremiah and the other prophets um, prophesy to um, the nation of Canaan, the Canaanites, and particularly to Tyre and Sidon. So why does he go? Well, the text tells us that he wanted to get away. It's simple as that. Um, some can allude to, uh, some. Uh, it was his desire to be hidden, um, is what the text seems to say, and it's possibly because of rest. As we see many other places in the book of Mark, um, um, but the, the text says that he couldn't. You know, he couldn't find a place to where he could rest. And um, so that's like somewhat of a superficial reason, although it's not really that superficial. The Lord Jesus Christ is um, he's tired in his human body, um, and he's been ministering for years now. He's in the last year of his ministry, and he needs to get some some rest. So he goes to Tyre and Sidon, and it says the text. But he couldn't be hidden, even when he goes into the house. Why? Because of Mark chapter three. Um, there's possibility, or probability, and I think high probability, that the people of Tyre and Sidon 
um, knew who he was. Why? Because they went to him in Mark chapter 3 because of all the things that he had, had been doing. More than that, though, I believe that there was a greater purpose. And I don't believe that it was an accident for Jesus to set his feet on Canaanite soil. Um, in Psalm chapter 87 and verse 4, it's stated prophetically, I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with e Ethiopia, this one was born here. And if you read the context, the context is going to argue that eventually the prophet would come, that God, Jesus Christ Himself, would draw men from all the nations, and particularly He um, accounts for these, uh, one of them being Tyre, Tyre with Ethiopia. Not only that, but when you read First uh, Kings chapter 17, you read about a very similar um, episode with another prophet by the name of Elijah. Um, no wonder they believe oftentimes and they argue among themselves, who is this? Is he Elijah to come? You know, is he the forerunner of the Messiah or is he the Messiah himself? Is this man Elijah? But there's a man by the name of Elijah who also ministers to a Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite, a Gentile, outside the um, quote-unquote elect, outside of the nation, the son um, of God, Israel. And he goes to them and he actually raises a widow, uh, a widow's dead son. Um, so there's no doubt that there's prophetic significance to him entering into Tyre in Psalm chapter 87 and also being a greater than Elijah, performing a similar miracle um, outside the bounds of Israel. Um, so no doubt he's here for a reason and it's a great purpose that many would recognize. So we see the place. Who's the person? The person's a woman, a Syrophoenician woman. So if he wanted to get away and get privacy, it didn't happen. Our Lord was uh, too far, again, popular it wasn't long before everyone uh, became aware. And in verse 25, we read, For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. She's driven. She's bold. She's motivated. Why? By certain circumstances that cause her to overstep the boundaries of what would be accepted in her day. Again, she's a Canaanite. Matthew says she's a Canaanite woman. She's a Gentile. She's outside the... Uh, nation of Israel, those who are promised the covenantal blessings. But um, first of all, she's a woman. You know, the societal attitude of the day, and I'm not talking about just the, significantly the biblical um, view of women, but uh, when you look at the societal view of women throughout the day, uh, no matter what was within the nation of Israel and even among the Jews, although I think they drifted from God, but the culturally um, all throughout that day, you would find that... Um, that for a woman to even approach a man, let alone a rabbi, was unheard of, um, and it was discouraged. So to give you a little context, to put yourself into what's happening here in the scandal that's about to go down, um, you need to understand a few things about this woman. First of all, she's a woman. Again, speaking both of Jews and the larger empire, um, and culturally, there was not a lot of favor towards women in those days, even among the Jews. When they're mentioned, it's often in association with or in a sense of belonging to a man. There's, um, there is no husband mentioned in the text, which is somewhat un unusual. I mean, it could mean that she's a widow, much like Elijah's uh, miracle. Um, but even among the Jews of Jesus' day, who had the Old Testament Scriptures and should have had a high view of women, um, uh, many Jews considered uh, females to be an inferior race and an inferior sex. That's made clear in the historian uh, Flavius Josephus, when he writes in one of his uh, books, the woman is inferior to the man in every way. Furthermore, it's not culturally appropriate for men and women to speak in public. 
This is a cultural practice that remains unchanged even to this day in many places in the Middle East. The fact that Jesus was a teacher made the impropriety even, even greater. Um, one writer notes that even rabbis don't speak in public to female members um, that are in their own families, let alone strangers. But even this wasn't all that was going against her. Number two, she's a Gentile. And the Jews anticipated Jesus' coming to bring blessings and liberation to the Jewish people particularly. One writer points out that the Jews held a strong conviction of the necessity of being a member of the chosen race by pure descent in order to receive and share in the future blessings. Thus a great deal of attention was given to racial purity. There was a nationalistic type of attitude within the nation of Israel, and we saw that in the previous passage. So oftentimes it was discouraged uh, for men to even engage not only women but pagans because they were unclean. This leads us to a third um, problem, which was that the lady was a, a native of the, the nation Tyre. This is going to complicate it even more. Why? Because this was an, one of the greatest expressions of paganism, uh, both actually and symbolically. A Jew could expect to encounter, um, was what um, one uh, writer writes. The Israelites had extensive, as we mentioned earlier, an antagonistic history with uh, Tyre. Um, the disciples would have equated people of Tyre with the epitome or uncleanness of impurity, or the epitome of uh, impurity. Of all the people to, ask, to seek Jesus, the people of Tyre were the most, quote-unquote, undeserving. From a reader's perspective, um, even from the perspective of the disciples as observers, this story follows on the heels of, uh, again, the conversation had earlier. Finally, if her ethnicity and gender weren't enough going against her culturally, um, her daughter was possessed by a demon. A demon. The disciples would have been completely uncomfortable with this. And that's actually what you see if you were to go to the book of Matthew. Um, after um, Jesus interacts with her and she interacts with Christ, the disciples actually say, she keeps coming after us, Lord. Do you want us to send her away? Um, why? Because of the unusual and the provocative nature. So what do we have? We have a woman, a Gentile, originating from Tyre, the epitome of paganism, um, worshipers of Baal. Um, offerings of children of child sacrifice and a hundred other of debauchery and demon possession, further defiling her family, and she's here dressing a rabbi in public. Not only did she come, but um, she comes boldly. She comes in a way that she's not going to be refused, and she's not going away. She's persistent. So, what's her purpose? Well, the scripture tells us her purpose in verse number. 25 and 26, that the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her, her daughter. So her daughter has a, a demon. And, and again, I want us to take just a moment to pause and meditate on what exactly that means. Because for many of us, and for many of you, for myself included, if it's not experiential, it's not personal. It's like that with the Word of God often. It's like that with the world often, right? Um, it's often just that. It's words. You know, we blow through in family worship or we blow through in a sermon or we blow through in a reading and we're not moved by the text. We're not, um, we're not, it doesn't become part of us. It doesn't take root. It doesn't produce fruit because we often are just too distracted and too busy. And oftentimes we don't take the time to understand exactly what the person or the people are going through, what Jesus is somewhat trying to convey. It's unmoving because we can't feel it. It's unmoving because um, the Spirit of God doesn't operate oftentimes because we don't even 
Um, read to read. Um, we read just to read, if that makes sense. We have too many other things to worry about, and until it hits uh, something that we value, oftentimes it doesn't even matter. Therefore, the, li- the text lies um, on our minds, but it's meaningless and dormant upon our inner spirit and heart. So again, her daughter has a demon. On the one hand, this condition may um, mean many things. Specifically, it could mean an inability to speak. It could mean, um, in some texts, blindness. It could mean physical ailments. It could mean intermittent seizures and an inability to hear. It could mean that seizures are so bad that it's often associated with, quote, one scripture says, great suffering or great torment. Some demon-possessed people are socially isolated. They're all alone. They live among themselves and among the tombs. They dwell in the mountains apart from society. They, 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 they're not social and they can't be. Um, they're driven by demons into the desert. They're, they're, they're often found naked. Um, they're often harming themselves, cutting themselves. They have excessive abilities and supernatural things only to harm themselves and others because they can't control themselves. Um, they, they have different personalities. They have different voices. They have often suicidal tendencies and self-destructive um, behavior. Um, so imagine that in a little girl. You know? And that's the term that he uses. It's not just a daughter. Uh, Mark uses specific words to refer to the dogs and to other and to the crumbs and even to this girl as a little girl. A little girl who you, whom you've raised. Um, who you, this, this woman gave birth to. Um, a pagan, you can argue, nonetheless. Um, but there's a natural affection often between a father and a mother and her children that is, that is undeniable a love um, whom she nurtured, whom she put upon her breast, whom she laid to rest every single night, who tucked her into bed, whom she had a tremendous um, natural love for, um, uh, no doubt. This little girl who had formed a little personality, whom she raised and maybe even sent off to, uh, to be taught to come home, to, to feed day in and day out, to play with. I mean, she's a different person now. Um, she's a different, uh, has a different personality. She... Uh, maybe self-destructive, maybe what we would even refer to today as uh, mentally um, incapable or deficient. Uh, maybe self-destructive for her, and the tenderness that she used to once have is gone. Her little daughter, her little baby is gone. She might as well um, be as good as, as dead. That's what we're talking about. Uh, not only is she hurting herself, but she's hurting others. She's hurting her mother. Uh, who knows what exactly the demon possession is alluding to, Um, But when we look at demon possession all throughout the New Testament, these are some of the things um, that we see. So you can imagine the boldness. You can imagine the motivation. You can imagine um, the drive. Um, So what does she do? What does it drive her to do? I mean, it drives her to, um, to run to Christ. But wait a minute, right? She's a, she's a pagan. She doesn't believe in Christ. No doubt that in Canaan, no doubt in Tyre and inside in the epitome of paganism, Baal worship and pride, um, sacrifice of, of even children to other gods, why doesn't she just lay her upon the altar of Baal? Um, why doesn't she just run to the other gods? And maybe she did. I, I, I almost think in myself she did. I think she took the little girl but couldn't take it as far as that. Um, but tried a number of, uh, of remedies and witchcraft and sacrifice and a number of other things to heal the little one whom she once knew. And, um, but now she runs to Christ. 
Matthew gives us some insight into her view of Jesus. You know, you could say, why is she running to him just so that she could um, receive um, blessing? And that could be true. There's no doubt in my mind that many pagans came just because of the miraculous nature and they wanted healed or they wanted material, they wanted possession. Um, we see that of Herod. He just comes because he's enamored with the anomaly and the, uh, um, and the, new, and the, the anomaly of Christ, right? Um, and he just wants to see the miracles. He just wants to, to, to he's enamored by the, 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 the nature of the things that he can do. Um, so is that the idea here? I don't think it is. And when you go to Matthew, you get a little bit more extensive idea of exactly what she thought about Christ. In verse 24 you read, um, But he answered and said, I was not sent to accept to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even uh, the little dogs eat crumbs which fall from the master's table. And you may have a translation that actually um, refers to not only Lord, help me, but it says, uh, Lord, son of David. Um, that it seems that she has a little bit more of a, a, a view of God than the pagans had. That what she is doing is actually doing what First Thessalonians argues that the Thessalonians did when they turned to God and they turned from idols to the true and the living God. Um, and that's manifested in the awaiting of, their, of the second coming of Christ and they're looking to Him. That what I believe that we have here in Matthew and, in, uh, and even in Mark is... Uh, when she says, I think it's in verse 22, she says, Have mercy on me in Matthew, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. She may not have had all of her theology perfectly ironed out, but she knew enough to know that she was promised, that, he, that the promised son of David, who as Lord had the ability to restore her little girl. At this point, it seems that she does, as again Thessalonians argue, and turn from God and turn from idols and turn um, to God. And you say, could she have had the gospel? I think no doubt she could have. Again, Mark chapter 3, what do we see? Tire inside and come and receive the kingdom message. Repent and believe. Come. Jesus Christ is here, the Messiah. Um, turn to Christ and live. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. No doubt tired inside. And some of them went back, um, possibly converted, and the message, if not, at least the message is being scattered around as heresy. And she hears it. And therefore she comes, that's what it says in Mark, that she heard of Him, and therefore she came into the house seeking after this man whom the Lord, um, Kurios, the one who is governor over all the earth, and uh, the son of David, um, the promised one in some sense of the word. Again, may not have had it all figured out, but um, definitely had some of it figured out. And then we get to the interesting portion. Um, if it wasn't interesting enough, you get to Jesus' response. What you read in Mark chapter 7 is um, this. Verse 25, For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. Um, the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician woman, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her. Um, but if you were to go to uh, Matthew chapter 15, again, you would get kind of the fuller account, and you would read um, these words. Verse number 22, And behold, a woman came out and she cried, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. And he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, 
for she cries out after us. Um, she comes, pours out her spirit, um, motivated as bold as you want to argue. And uh, what does Jesus do initially? Um, he does nothing. You know? And this is a difficulty here with this passage with our own thinking. Um, because we think, man, Jesus, what are you doing? Right? This is a perfect place to give the gospel. This is a perfect place to, to heal her. This is a perfect place. Um, so it sounds by many, and you can read a lot of commentaries from secular positions who actually come to the position that Jesus um, sins here um, because of the way that He treats this woman. Um, and you can read a lot of accounts from modern day people who actually argue the sinfulness of Jesus out of this account and the fact that He's not the Son of God because um, He's rude, He's harsh, He's demeaning to this um, um, hurt and a hurting widow. Interestingly enough, um, some Jewish commentators um, even kind of lean that, that way. The evidence suggests that this response is actually um, appropriate, though. And I'm not saying or arguing that it's appropriate from a cultural context or from, from um, this way or that way. I'm just saying from, from a more of a Jewish context, this is actually a very appropriate um, response from the cultural norms, right? We read what the cultural norms were earlier about a, a woman, a Gentile, somebody that's a pagan from Tyre. Um, so this would have been what many of the Jews would have done. A rabbi that comes, he would have just totally ignored her. And I'm not arguing that that's what Jesus here is doing. We'll get to what I think he's doing here in just a moment. Um, but, you, but, it, but, but the fact remains in Matthew, he, he answers her not a word. What's the woman's response in Matthew? Uh, she doesn't give up. She continues to cry out after Him. That, that verb there is in a form that literally means she keeps coming and coming and coming. Um, literally, she cries out um, in a way that because she is so motivated, she's not going anywhere. So what was the disciples' response? Again, Matthew 15, 23, Lord, she won't stop. You're not responding. Can we just send her away already? She's coming after us. It could be that they had recognized the authority that Christ had given them and even came to them. And I said, would you cast this demon out of her? Um, but um, they had inability. And so they come to Christ, turn to Christ and say, Lord, can we just send her away and get rid of her? What does she do after that? Matthew 5, 15, 25. She comes again and worships Him, saying, Lord, help me. Um, he responds in Mark 7 and 27 with these words. It gets even more difficult. Jesus says to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. What does that have to do with anything, right? Maybe some of you are thinking that. I remember reading this text weeks ago and uh, initially thinking, Man, like where is he going with this? Um, what in Matthew's account um, does this have to do with what's going on at all? You know, if you were to go to or in Mark's account as well, Matthew's account, you read um, a similar phrase actually that's given prior to that that we'll get to in just a moment. Um, you know, what does that have to do with um, anything. And maybe you're wondering that question as well as I, I did initially. You know, what, what do dogs have to do with anything? What does the children eating have to do with anything? Um, and in Matthew's account, if we were to go there, you would read um, a phrase again prior to that um, that says these 
words. As the disciples come to him, he says, I was not sent except to the lost house or the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what does she do? She comes to him and says, Lord, help me. And then he answers and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Um, What does it have to do with anything? Um, Essentially what he is saying to her is, is that right now it's not the time of the Gentiles. If you study the Scriptures and you study, for example, um, Romans, you'll, you'll read very familiar passages of Scripture where he's talking about the Gospel. And where did the Gospel come? It's the power of God unto salvation to who? To the Jew first and then to the Greek. That here what we, re- what we read in Mark chapter 7 and verse 26 is a passage that refers to a Greek woman or a Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite. And what Jesus is saying here is what He says to the disciples in Matthew um, chapter number 15. And then He turns to her and gives her a parable. And what's the, um, the parable? He says, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it um, to little dogs. Again, it's puzzling. And what's even more puzzling is her response. Um, because essentially what He is saying is where the um, secular... Um, commentators have issue is that he's actually referring to her as a dog. You know, many of the Jews had this idea that the Canaanites, that the pagans were actually dogs. They were second, they were under them. Um, and that the nation of Israel were the elect, that they were the chosen, that they were the children. Jesus utilizes this phrase um, to even refer to her. That's where the controversy um, comes in. Uh, and we can argue about the controversy and the nature of it, and whether it was right for Jesus to use it or, or not. The interesting thing comes with her response in my thinking. What does she do? What does she say? She answers and says to him, Yes, Lord. Yes. Yes, Lord. She agrees with him. She doesn't argue. She doesn't deny it. She, whether you want to argue whether it's truth or not, I think it is, but she recognizes it as, as truth. And she even adds something to it. She says, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. There was a minority of dogs that function um, like we do today. Most dogs, the reason that it would have been a pejorative or a derogatory term in those days that the Jews would use it is because most dogs were scavengers. Um, They only ate dead and unclean things, therefore they were considered unclean. Um, there was a small minority that were actually like we have domesticated dogs today, and they're just little pet dogs. Mark actually uses that word. He uses a word, and that's why the New King James translated as little um, dogs. Um, domesticated pets is what he would have been referring to that eat from the table. Um, he says it's not a good practice. This is the argument. It's not a good practice to feed the dogs before feeding the children first. Otherwise, the children go hungry while the dogs are fed is the argument. And that's good practice today. The controversy just comes in whether we should refer to the humans as, as dogs. But it's a parable. Um, it's, a, it's a parable, interestingly enough, that she understands. You remember what the use of parables were for earlier? When we went to Matthew and we talked about the seed and the sower. What was the use of the parables? The parables were for who? I mean, it was for the disciples. Why? Because they would understand them. It wasn't for everybody else. It wasn't for um, the, the, um, the religious elite. It wasn't for those that were steeped in legalism who didn't know Christ and didn't know God. It was for those who were believers who had ears to hear and eyes to see. And she doesn't miss a beat. I believe at this point she's a believer. Why? Because she understood the Word. She understood the parable. 
She doesn't argue with Jesus. She doesn't um, go to task with Him. She doesn't um, usurp authority over Him. She actually submits to the Word and she says, You're exactly right, Lord. You're exactly right. I'm not asking for that. I know that the plan, it could have been that she knew what the plan was. As he turns to the disciples, maybe she overheard it and she understood that the gospel um, from ages past was, um, was determined to go through Israel by virtue of Israel and that it would eventually reach the Gentile nations um, a hundredfold as a result of what God would do in the nation of Israel. That eventually the gospel, he would go to the nation of Israel, he would die upon a cross and Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God would come and it would fall upon all the nations. And a Jewish church would be born that would become and convert to Christianity. 3,000 would be saved. Thousands more would be saved through revivals and through the Spirit of God later and eventually the Jewish um, converted church would take the gospel to the entirety of the world. And that's why in China today and Africa and, and all throughout Asia and here in America and in Europe the gospel is there. Why? Because of what Christ accomplished in Israel um, post resurrection, death, burial, resurrection and ascension. That was God's overall progressive plan to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And the Gentiles were always in God's mind. Again, um, Psalm chapter 87, all throughout the book of Isaiah, that the Gentiles, that God always desired the nations and that Jesus would always plan to die for the nations, but it would be through the mode and the method and the means of the nation of Israel in which the church would be born and take that gospel into the world um, that all of uh, the nations would convert um, to His name. And I think she somewhat understood that. She says, yes, Lord, you're right. And I'm not asking for that. She understood a little bit about the covenantal blessings that God had promised to the nation of Israel. And, and she recognizes that. She's saying, in essence, I have no right to that, Lord. They have privileges and blessings that I don't have. I understand that. They're the children of promise. They have the blessings. They have the covenants. They have the promises. They have the fathers. I understand that that's theirs. I don't want that. I don't need that. Let the children eat in some sense. It's theirs. You promised it to them. Give it to them. I'm not asking for what they have. But at the same time, I understand the grace of God. And while they eat, I also understand that the little dogs come and they find the crumbs. Is there something wrong with the little dogs eating the crumbs? That's what she's saying. Um, Matthew 15 says that Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. Mark 7, 29 says, Then He said to her, For this saying, Go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Again, a lot of difficulty there in a controversial passage as Jesus deals with this particular woman. Um, but it draws out of her um, a reality about the faith that she has, who it's in, and her understanding of it, such that God blesses the faith of it and answers her request. Some argue that um, what happens is that Jesus is more like touche. <laughs> and because of her wit, He submits to her and gives her what she wants just to kind of get her out of the house and to leave Him alone. I don't think that's the case. I believe that she is a genuine believer. That God saved her, gave her a new heart. She understood the Word of God. 
And as a, re- as a result of understanding the Word of God and God's purpose in time and, and the lack of partiality, um, she understands that God gives grace to those who come. Um, and while she does not have a right to certain things, um, she does have a right to that um, if she comes as God desires. Thus, He blesses her um, with it. So what we see here is we see uh, with, her, with, with the fulfillment of her desires. And her little girl is saved. Um, and you see the great confidence exemplified in that. What does he say? In verse 30, he says, in, uh, in verse number 29, he says, Go your way. He, and when she had come to her house, she found the demon was gone out. She had a confidence in the Word. She had a confidence in Christ. She didn't argue with the Lord Jesus and say, Well, why don't you just come and, and let's, let's make sure, you know. I need you there. No, it's as similar as the Roman centurion, right? Go And, and Jesus looks to, at, at everybody around and says, I've not seen faith like this at all. You know, like in, in all of Israel, I've not found faith like this to the Roman centurion. In another sense, he's saying, I've not found faith like this. Why? Because she doesn't even need me to come back. She, she just takes it upon the word. She goes back and her daughter's there. And she's lying on a bed and the, the demon is, is gone. She has confidence in the Lord. And what we see here is we see a great example of great faith from the most unexpected place. We see an example of great faith. What does it exemplify? Great faith exemplifies humility. Humility. Humility recognizes truth whether it hears, whenever it hears it and humbly submits to it. Again, notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't claim that her case makes her special. She doesn't claim that um, she's an exception. She doesn't say, now Lord, you can't do that to me because we... We're talking about children here and children are dear to your heart and come on, what do you say? She doesn't look at him and says, well, you saved the Roman centurion, now why don't you save me? She doesn't lay claim or hold to much of anything. Neither does she complain about the fact that she's not part of the covenant people of God in the nation of Israel. She doesn't look at the Lord and say, you know, Lord, I'm, I know I'm not part of Israel, but that's because you made me that way, you know? Neither does she pretend to lay claim to Israel's privileges as if she deserves it because she recognizes that she doesn't. She says, yes, Lord, I agree. I am a dog. I am. I don't deserve to be fed with the children's bread. I have no claim to even be here or to be asking you anything. I don't have claim to the covenant. Abraham is not my father. I don't have claim to those promises. So true humility submits to the truth about who we are. Right? It recognizes who God is, but first and foremost, it examines our own hearts and it recognizes that we fall short of the glory of God. All throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, what do you see? You see the people of God refer to themselves as even worse than this. I think it's in Job. He refers to himself as a worm. And that is true in relationship to God, right? That we are but dust. That we are the lowest and the most abased. Um, base of animals and even creatures in comparison to the greatness and the glory of a holy and a righteous God um, who is sinless and perfect and, and is the creator of all things and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So, so it is not an unjust title to take that I am a dog. That's actually in my own opinion from my own heart and what I know about myself and just the depravity that existed within before Christ that that is a step up from what I truly was. That we're actually much worse than, than dogs. Helpless dogs. And she uses... And that, but, but while humility, humility submits to the truth about self, it also submits to the truth about God. 
And he says, and she says, but those little dogs, she also says, I'm a helpless dog in some sense. But um, he, she also uses the uh, diminutive or the, um, the, um, the, the, the minority uh, word for crumb. She acknowledges that even the tiny scraps that fall from the master's table would be enough for her. She's not asking for a full meal. She's not asking for leftovers. She's not asking for something that one of the kids dropped. She's merely standing, I don't need that. Just let me hang around with a little crumb. She lays hold of Christ and states that anything that she receives is more than she deserves. She tenaciously lays hold of uncovenanted mercy. Outside of the, outside of the nation of Israel, she, uh, she comes to Christ for mercy that she was never promised specifically to her. That there's nothing in her to impress and she recognizes that, but she also recognizes the character of Christ, that He is a merciful God. And there, thus she lays hold of His character in nature. Jesus, um, believers do this all over the Old and New Testament, and we should as, as well. And verse 29, as a result, He blesses her. Mercy is given to this Gentile woman who has no claim on it. Jesus honors her bold hope, hope and her simple faith. Great faith is also is not only humble, it's, um, it's, it's, it's not only manifest in humility, but it's, it, great faith is often humble because it's desperate faith. People don't often get humble or humble themselves because they're not desperate. They often don't understand who they are until all they have is themselves and they're all alone. Great faith recognizes if the work will be done, it will simply be done because God will do it and God alone. In fact, if God doesn't do it, it won't be accomplished. She was so gripped by the need that she had that in desperation she collapsed before Christ. She wasn't like Nicodemus who came by night who with high probability was afraid others may see him. Thus she wanted to hide because of her status. At this point, she could care less who saw her. She could care less that her neighbor or her family or any civil authorities might say, what in the world is she doing before a Jew? Why would you bow down before her? Um, she doesn't care if she's shunned. She doesn't care if um, she can't go back to Tyre and Sidon anymore. Um, something has some, become so valuable. Something has gripped her heart so much um, that she comes to the point where she doesn't care. Um, who cares? Um, she needs Christ because He's the last hope. So she abandons all of her pagan idolatry. She abandons all of her uh, rituals. She abandons all of her history. She abandons her family in some sense of the word. And she falls and worships the Christ. The text says she's not going anywhere. The text says she keeps on asking. Um, it signifies just a perpetual desperation. Um, thus, humble faith is a persistent faith. Because humble faith is a desperate faith. It persists simply because it is humble. It submits to the truth of God's Word, thus it believes God and lays hold of the promises of God until they are fulfilled. This is true prayer. This is true prayer. So why did Jesus deal with her so harshly? I'll give you my take on it. Jesus deals with her in such a way that her answer reveals what her faith is made of. Her answer reveals where her hope was and, not the, and the deep, notes the deep confidence that she has in Him. As He sends her away, um, she doesn't say, but wait, you didn't even look at my daughter. She takes the son of David at His word and goes home. 
she demonstrates that the kingdom of God had come to a Gentile world and a Gentile woman. This response is not to insult the woman, although it sounds insulting, I, I get it. It wasn't given to, to, to the woman to discourage her, although it was discouraging. To, it would be discouraging to some, but not to her. This statement is, uh, it, did not incur, it did not discourage her. It did not insult her. She didn't walk away with her feelings hurt. Um, she didn't walk away discouraged in her faith. Actually, it did something um, to rile up in her a greater faith. To cling to the promises of God, to continually pursue. This statement is given to draw out of this woman, not only for herself, but for her disciples, and I believe ultimately for her, an example of a tenacious faith. Make no mistake about it, the Lord God will often be silent to us, even resist us, and oftentimes uh, respond to us in such a way that makes us think um, that, that would, that would um, display a true faith. That's what you see all throughout the seed of the soils, the four soils. You find those who had um, saving faith, the good soil, it produces fruit. And you find those other three soils that things come along, trials and tribulations. Why? To test their faith, to reveal to them the, the, their lack of faith altogether. Why? So that they may come to Christ. Christ often does this to us. I think about um, Luke chapter number 18. When you read of a very similar um, scenario, Luke chapter 18 and verse number 1, um, then He spoke a parable, Jesus, to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying this, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to Him saying, Get justice for me, for my adversaries. And He would not for a while. But afterward He said within Himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, Yet because the widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming to me she weary me. And I would encourage you not to take every single little thing out of that and equate that. A parable generally has one great truth that you need to take home. And if you try to parallel everything out and make a truth out of it, you're going to end up in some wonky places. So don't do that. But the point is given to us in verse 6. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. He's teaching them something about prayer. What did you hear that the unjust said? He said, well, then know this. Shall not God, shall God not avenge His own elect who cry out day and night to Him, though He bears long with them? I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? And the idea is this, that true faith is a humble faith, a desperate faith, um, and, and it manifests itself in a persistent faith. That manifests itself in persistent prayer. That there is like this uh, widow that comes to a judge who knows that the judge is to carry out justice. And even though he delays for a moment, she understands the justice system enough to know that she needs to keep coming. He says, God is like that. Shall not the God of all the earth avenge His own elect to cry out to Him day and night, though He bears long with them? That even though there is a silence in the beginning, it doesn't mean that God's not there and that God doesn't speak and that God won't do. Right? That, that, that God is sovereign and in control. And what ends up happening oftentimes in reform circles or God is sovereign is the same thing that He argues against in Matthew um, for His disciples, right? Um, that, 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 that we often think that you know, it will be what it will be. We look out at the world and we see the election and things are falling apart and, and, and society is degradating. And, what we have to, and oftentimes what we fall into is this idea that God is sovereign and what will be, will be. And we throw our hands down as if God's going to do it. And we are practically, functionally hyper-Calvinists. 
But the, but the true prayer presented in Scripture is that if God is sovereign and God is who that He says that He is and, and He gives us promises and desires and a number of things, then you have every right to pursue Christ and to pursue God for that. Right? The disciples ask Him, Lord, how in the world should we pray? Like, we don't know how to do that. Well, pray like this. Thy kingdom, our Father which art in heaven, um, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And He starts with His own character and He starts with His own nature. And he says, this is who I am. And from that, prayer should flow. Well, what should your desires be? That the kingdom of God is established upon the earth. Thus you pray like that, like you believe that it can happen because it can happen. And it will happen. And it has happened for the last 2,000 years. And it will continue to happen. And you see men pray like this all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament. You know, one of my favorite prayers is Psalm chapter number 90. It's a psalm of Moses. Um, who takes the model of Jesus' prayer when He teaches His disciples in Luke chapter 11 and verse number 1. And He begins like this. It's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. It says, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever You had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night you carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it's cut down. Verse 7, For we have been consumed by your anger. Verse number 8. Let's go to verse number um, 10. Um, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength there are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of anger? For, who as, for as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And what he's saying there, and we can go on, uh, but what he's saying there is, is that he begins the passage, the prayer, out like this, God, you are from everlasting to everlasting. Time is... Um, is infinite with you. You created it. You control it. So Lord, teach us to number our days. He's going to talk about His character and nature. And in just a few moments, He's going to say as a result of that, return, O Lord. God, don't forget us. Satisfy us early with Your mercy. Why? So that we may rejoice. He's going to say, make us glad. He's going to say, let Your work appear. He's going to say, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. And the argument goes like this. God, you're like this, so do this. Father, this is who you are, and you are eternal, and you control time. God, and you, 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 you number our days, Father, then teach us how to do that. Like, I know you've numbered our days, and I know that, you know, that when the end comes, the end will come, and that you've set the pace for our life, and you know the beginning and end. So, Father, teach me how to do that. Teach me to number my days so that I can handle every one of them wisely. Father, You are like You are, so let the beauty of the Lord there shine upon us. Why? So that the world may see it, so that our children may reflect that as well. And what you see is you see that persistent prayer is born out of the character and nature of God. Therefore, um, in it, with, it, with a right understanding of the desire of God and the promises of God and God's desire for us, we have every right and privilege to come boldly and persistently to Christ, to the throne room of grace, um, so, so sufficiently um, uh, given to us as a blessing. Um, we have every right to, to run to Him and expect Him to act because of who He is. That's prayer. Prayer is not getting your job, um, your desires done here on earth and bringing uh, you know, God coming down as your slave and your servant. 
Um, prayer is us um, submitting to God's truth, His promises, His desires for us, and us pursuing those with everything that we have. You say, well, God hasn't spoken. He bears long with us. And sometimes He does it so that you and I will manifest it to teach us the faith that we truly do have. You know? What we see here is an example of a woman with great faith who humbles herself to the Word of God, who knows enough about the character and nature of God that she responds with a truth about God. She says, I know, Lord. She doesn't argue with them, but this is what I know about you. You know? But yes, you feed the children. But it's because of the... That I'm, it's exactly what I'm... I, I'm submitting to that exact truth that you just said. I know that you're going to bring the gospel through Israel to the Gentiles. I'm just asking you to do it now in a little measure. And thus she comes and God never turns anybody who comes genuinely away. And we see this example of great faith as she pursues God and perseveres in um, intercession for her little girl. Um, for God's glory, I believe. So we see a manifestation of great faith that we should all example just as in Luke chapter 8, 18. Um, I guess my question to us would then be, how is your faith? How is your faith? Well, maybe we can ask it this way. How is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? What are you seeking God after? What promise are you holding on to that you're just not going to let go until you hear from God? In His Word, through His Spirit. You know, what desire that is truly godly. And that's what you have to get down to as well. You know, some people talk to me about the desires and they come with questions and they ask, you know, um, how do I know um, whether to pursue God in this or not? Well, first I would ask, what's your motivation? You know, because we have not because we ask not. That's some of us. And some of us have not because we ask amiss. Why? To consume it upon our own lusts. Even the salvation of our family members, even um, the desire for a, a mate, um, even the desire for some seemingly good things for my marriage um, or for my children, that oftentimes um, God does not act or God does not extend blessing. Why? Because I take the crown up off of His head and consume it upon my own lust. Do you know that you can desire the salvation of the entire world um, simply because of your own lusts? I don't know how long I prayed for my brother that he would be saved. And it was selfish, you know. Jesus Christ deserves my brother simply because he created him. And for his own honor and for his own glory. Not for me to sleep better at night, you know. Jesus Christ desires for this church to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. But you better believe, for, you know, you better believe that He'll stifle that um, the very moment that we become high and haughty so that we can manifest our strength in our arm and say, look at us. You know? That there are good things that we can desire, even godly marriages and raising our children, um, that they may come to Christ so that we can sleep better at night. You know? Why do you want what you want? Why do we desire the things that we desire? You know, and we are we are great as Christian people as making uh, laying out good desires that we think are um, that should be commendable, um, yet to consume them totally upon our own lusts. You know, and the desires of our own heart. Why to comfort our souls or to do this or to do that? 
Now, the ultimate fruit will be that if we desire Christ's glory and God does, um, does give us many of those things, that there will be comfort. But that comfort flows out of a Christ-likeness and that rejoicing flows out of a rejoicing for God. So, Lord, help us to... to um, to, um, to, to glory in your presence and, and desire these things for you um, simply because you deserve them. And from that um, will flow a natural and spiritual glory. What are you praying that God would glorify himself in your life? What are you pursuing Christ after? You know, and you say, I have some sin in my life I just can't get rid of. You know, what is God's desire for you? You know, you ever think about that? So many of us live with certain sins in our lives because um, we just think we can't get over them and we can't battle them and we get tired and we get weary and we think it's not God's desire. What does the Scripture teach? The Scripture teaches to mortify that Jesus Christ died so that you would die to sin and to live unto righteousness. Are you believing God for that? Or are you still battling you know, with uh, the sin of lust, man? You know, and battling with uh, viewing things like pornography or not loving your wife or this marriage is just never going the way that I want it to go. What is God's desire for marriage? You know, do you pray about it daily? That Christ would honor Himself and glorify Himself upon your marriage and upon your children? You know, do you have wayward children? You know, whom you're seeking after and pursuing for God's glory? You know, it's easy to get weary and well-doing and to, and, to, and to think that they're gone. You know, and there is sometimes a time to stop activity, but never stop bombarding the throne room of grace for God's glory that He may save them. Um, and a number of other things. Are you persistent in God's glory? Are you clinging to some promise that has caused you to be desperate? You know, where you believe that if anything's going to happen, like God's got to do it, that you come to His feet and you bring it before Him and ask just for a little crumb, not for myself. I don't need everything, Lord, and I don't need the blessing of this family, and I don't need the blessing of that family, Lord, but I understand that the Master gives good gifts, and Lord, would you just give a crumb? May we be like Moses. You know, whom, whom God is about to pour out wrath upon the nation of Israel. Moses comes and says, God, for your glory, don't do it. The rest of the nations um, will, will blaspheme your name. Let them know that you're compassionate and let them know that you're merciful. And may you receive the glory, Father, by relenting of the wrath. And you know what God does? He uses Moses as a means to save the nation of Israel. It was through his prayer and through his intercession that he appeals to the character of God and his glory. Um, that, that, that saves that nation for the glory of God. Men, are you praying that for your families? You know? Are you doing it to consume it upon your own lusts? Or do we simply have not because we ask not? Because we're just um, consumed with life and the distractions and the burdensome nature of it. Man, we need some great faith. And one of the great blessings of this passage, and final point, is that great faith comes from the most obscure places. Like you would expect it to come from the nation of Israel, you know? The Jews were expecting it day in and day out. Why? Because they had the covenants, they had the blessings, they had the fathers, they had everything that should contribute to just wholesale um, devotion to God. Yet you find them to be the most debauched, rebellious, and depraved people. And you know what the Jews are looking at? They're looking at Tyre and they're saying, not in Tyre, you know? Not in Sidon. Um, you know, it's like out of Nazareth. Right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? Um, it comes from the God's work. Often comes from the most obscure places.
like Tyre and Sidon. And you may be thinking today, who am I? Who am I that God may manifest? Who is this church? Who are we? You look around and we've just got a handful of people, you know, and you think, what in the world can we do? You know, you look at like other larger institutions, you look at organizations, you think about men like um, whom we uphold and the faith throughout the ages. And we think, man, you know, God, it's, it's, it makes sense that God can do something with them, but, but not us. Know this, great faith comes from the most obscure places because God um, loves to do and receive glory um, from the most obscure places. I, don't, I choose not many wise. I choose not many noble. I choose not many great. I choose not many mighty. Why? So that he may receive the honor and the glory. Israel, why did I choose you? I simply love you because I love you. And you were the least of the nations. Tyre, like who, who, can anything good come out of Tyre? Something great came out of Tyre. Um, because something great went into Tyre, which was the gospel, which was Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ pierces a man, pierces a woman, pierces the heart of a little boy or a little girl, great things happen because he's present among them. So don't think necessarily for just a moment that um, you look around and you see not great things happening. This is where great things happen in some of the most obscure places. I'm praying that God gives us some great faith. I'm praying that simply upon His Word, He humbles us, um, gives us some promises, gives us um, to cling to, gives us some desires to run after for His glory. Why? That the rest of the world may look in and see that Jesus Christ is King of this congregation and thus glorify His name for that. And you say, why hasn't that happened yet? I ask you, do we have not because we ask not? Or do we have not because we ask it upon our own lusts? Or do we have not simply because God is bearing along with us to see whether or not we get tired and we get weak and we get wounded and we wonder where in the world is God at? Thus we throw in the towel and we fold the church um, when he's simply silent for the moment because he bears long with his children you know maybe some of you are thinking about quitting something maybe some of you are thinking about giving up on something uh, maybe some of you are struggling with something and you're getting tired and you're angry with God or you're bitter with him or uh, a hundred other emotions that are unbiblical you know because I've been there and I've done that I've played that card and that's a bad place to be in and some days you just want to quit. Some days you just want to fold. And you open up the Word of God and God speaks. And you just submit yourself wholly as He speaks to you. And, um, and you recognize that God is patient and God is long-suffering. Thus you persevere and thus you um, persist. And thus, you know, you just eat another crumb off the Master's table. And you're reminded of the graciousness of God. I encourage you, church, to carry on. I encourage you to persist. I encourage you to humble yourself. And I encourage you to trust God today. Um, not, that he, not that we could uphold ourselves, but that God would uphold us and He would receive the honor and the glory that is due His name. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You for the privilege it is to call upon You. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that He's done to accomplish salvation on our behalf. 
Father, we thank you for the, um, the commitment of your son to enter into the world, um, to become a human, to condescend to our state, to lay aside his rights and privileges um, so that he may die as one of us, thus taking the just penalty of sinners who deserve the just penalty of wrath. But Father, we see the great transaction in Christ. Um, where he takes men that are hostile towards him, where he takes women that are rebels against him, where he takes children, Father, who are manifesting unrighteous fruit, given long enough to raise their hand and fist against the holy God. Father, that um, it, it boggles our minds that Jesus Christ would enter into the world to save such sinners as us, seeing nothing good in us that should entice him at all. Father, but he determined according to your will, to enter in, to submit himself to seemingly frivolity, laying aside his majesties and his glory to become like us, to die as us, to do what Adam could not do and would not do and to do what all of us could not, cannot do and will not do. Father, um, he endured the wrath of God upon Calvary that we deserve that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Father, I pray that if somebody here today doesn't understand that, Father, that they would submit to the Word of God and what you teach, that you'd give them a new heart. Father, that they would see Christ in all of his glory. They would see the love that was expressed in Christ coming to die as their, uh, die the death that they deserve. And that by believing and repenting, turning from themselves and turning to you, Father, um, they can have new life full and free in Jesus Christ. From that moment, they become a workmanship of Christ to live out the rest of their days for the honor and glory of him. Father, if that's not the case, um, Father, and we're all believers, um, we're all of us that are, Father, I pray that you'd help us today to have a greater faith. Help us to understand that the environment and circumstances that you've put us in may be simply to show us, Father, um, the reality of our faith and the lack thereof. Father, we're so gracious that you are patient and bear long with us. God, um, help us to take a little few more crumbs today, Father, from off of your table and the blessings that you have promised. Not only crumbs, Father, but the food that you have promised to us from your table, God, and draw sustenance and faith from it. Help us to understand, Father, as uh, the theologian said, that health is good, um, but sickness is better if it leads us to Christ. So, Father, uh, may the things that all surround us, may we recognize today, are for our good to draw out and to cultivate a greater faith in us. And may it manifest itself in humility and humbleness, Father, um, and in persistence and maybe even desperation. Maybe many of us today do not have a faith worth anything, Father, because it's not a desperate faith. We don't realize, Father, how much we need you. So sometimes our circumstances, uh, individually, locally, as a church, familially, and even culturally, Father, um, but sometimes you do the things that you do to help us understand that we need you. So, Father, help us to run to you today um, persistently, humbly, Father, um, and ask the things of you that you desire of us, that you may give us the desires of our hearts, knowing all the well that they're truly your desires. God, would you manifest your presence in our midst by answering prayer? God, and may you give us the faith to bear longer. Help us not to, 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 to uh, faint, Father, in well-doing, to grow weary or to faint in well-doing, but, Father, to trust you, to trust your character, to trust your nature, that you are faithful. 
God, may you just um, accomplish mighty things in this congregation because of great faith. Faith that you've wrought in us, Father. Faith that you um, keep. Faith that perseveres because it, um, it looks to you. In Jesus' name, amen.